Support for Rewrite Radio comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives. A powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. On this episode of Rewrite Radio, we celebrate the life of poet Anya Silver, who died in August 2018, by featuring her final panel at the Festival of Faith and Writing. You are here. This huh? is Rewrite Radio. This is Rewrite Radio. This is Rewrite Radio. This is Rewrite Radio. Thank you all for coming. It's what makes us more human because it connects us. Just look. Look at this world. A podcast from the Festival of Faith and Writing. I'm Jennifer Holberg, and I teach in the English department at Calvin College. With Jane Zwart, I co-direct the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing. In this episode of Rewrite Radio, four poets from different Christian traditions read their work and discuss how they seek to incorporate profound joy in their poetry and to explicitly address God as the source of their rejoicing, even when happiness is hard won, even when it happens in the midst of suffering. A Grammy nominee, Barbara Crooker is the author of eight books of poetry, including the forthcoming Book of Kells. Her writing has received numerous awards, including the Thomas Merton Poetry of the Sacred Award, the W.B. Yeats Society Award, three Pennsylvania Council on the Arts Fellowships in Literature, and 49 Pushcart Prize nominations. The director of the Writing Center at Taylor University, Julie Moore, is the author of Particular Scandals, Slipping Out of Bloom, and Election Day, a chapbook. Her poetry has appeared in numerous publications and anthologies. Her fourth collection of poetry, Full Worm Moon, was released in March 2018. Tanya Runyon is a poet and educator. Her poetry collections include Delicious Air, which was awarded Book of the Year by the Conference on Christianity and Literature. Runyon's Guides, How to Read a Poem, How to Write a Poem, and How to Write a College Application Essay are used in classrooms across the country. Anya Silver was the author of four books of poetry, The 93rd Name of God, I Watched You Disappear, From Nothing, and her most recent book, Second Bloom, published in 2017. Anya's verse was also published in many literary magazines, including Image, Harvard Review, Georgia Review, Crazy Horse, Witness, The Christian Century, and Prairie Schooner. Her work was also included in Best American Poetry 2016. Selected in 2018 for a prestigious Guggenheim Fellowship, Anya was a much-loved professor in the English department at Mercer University. In 2015, she was named Georgia Author of the Year in the poetry category. Having been living and thriving with inflammatory breast cancer since 2004, Anya passed away on August 6, 2018. We loved having her at the festival, and we will not see her like again. Here's Surprised by Joy, poetry about faith and happiness, from the 2018 Festival of Faith and Writing. This is Surprised by Joy, where we discuss writing about happiness. Um, and I just want to introduce um, the panel members. And what we'll do is each of us will get up and say a little bit about how we write about happiness. Um, you know, what enables us to do that, and then read a couple of poems. So we have a really phenomenal, these are phenomenal um, poets back here. So um, my name is Anya Silver, and I've published four books of poetry, my latest with um, a Poema Press, um, Second Bloom. Um, I just was awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship in Poetry, and I teach... <laughs> And I teach in the, you know, in the English department at Mercer University in Macon, Georgia. Um, behind me um, are Barbara Crooker, who is the author of 20 collections of poetry, chapbooks in full length, and her latest book, The Book of Kells, will be published by the Poema series of Cascade Press in 2019. 
Um, Julie Moore's most recent collection of poetry, Full Worm Moon, um, was published just last month by Pas Cascade Press in the Poema series, and she's also the author of three other books of poetry, and she teaches at Taylor University. And finally, we have, um, and certainly not least, um, the marvelous Tanya Runyon, who is a freelance writer and the author of eight books, um, including what will soon take place, which she just read from this afternoon, it was great, her most recent collection from Paraclete Press. So um, thank you all for being here, and we're just going to, um, we'll go in alphabetical order, so Barbara, you're up. Okay, well thank you all for coming, and I'm wondering if any of you recognize me, <laughs> because I'm the character Joy from the Pixar movie Inside Out. <laughs> I'm probably the only person who dyed her hair <laughs> for a festival of faith and writing. <laughs> when Anya asked me if I would like to participate in this panel, I told her I would do this, and she doesn't remember it. And she double-dog dared me, so. <laughs> and for those of you who don't have children, grandchildren, and didn't see this movie, this is an animated movie about the emotions. So there's joy, sorrow, anger, fear, and disgust, and these are all characters. Each of them is living inside the head of a young girl, running the emotions board as if it was a video game. At one point, sorrow becomes so sorrowful that she's overcome and she stops doing her job. Perky Joy, Amy Poehler, figures, well, who needs sorrow? Everyone wants joy. I can do this job without her. What could go wrong? <laughs> well, everything goes wrong. And in the end, joy and the other emotions learn that sorrow's purpose is to induce empathy and that all of the emotions are valid, equally valid, and they all have to work in sync with each other. So this is what informs my writing. I'm someone who perhaps has had more than her fair share of sorrow. My first child died, my, then my first marriage fell apart, I nearly lost my third daughter to a traumatic brain injury, my son to autism, I've lost my parents, and now I'm losing my friends. To quote Zora Neale Houston, I have been in sorrow's kitchen and I licked out all the pots. But I write about joy. Be joyful, says Wendell Berry even though you have carefully considered all of the facts. And I take that as my writing motto. Lemons. A yellow sun splashed lavish light on the garden, a bright bloom of a morning full of possibility. I was away from home teaching when one of the poems peeled back the thin rind of memory, and there I was back in the maternity ward when my firstborn died. I remember how white and cold the room was, even though my friends brought flowers, irises, roses. I was hollow, a fruit that had been pulped for juice leaving nothing but a shell, no flesh, no seeds. Thirty years later, my daughter's globe stomach, and then there was Daniel, shining and puckered in the moony glow of the delivery room, rinsed with light from another world and a new day dawning. The next poem is one that I wrote when I was in residence in Ireland. Um, when I was there, I fell in love with magpies, okay. Um, we don't have them in the East. And I wanted them to show up in a poem. So I did some online research about magpies, including folklore about magpies. And they're really stunning black and white birds, if you don't know them. So they're both light and dark. And this poem is the result. Magpie on the lawn, and I am transfixed by its exotic look. Stark black and white feathers, jutting tail, strut like a peacock on the glittering grass that spills a handful of emeralds before him. 
One is for sorrow. The old nursery rhyme goes, and I look for a partner, hoping for joy. Oily feathers glossed purple and green, snowy shoulders, chest and wingtips, motley and pied. He doesn't need the rest of the spectrum, the gaudy rainbows, pennants, and flags. He knows the world is black and white. See him swoop, searching for treasure, bottle caps, gum wrappers, pennies, the glitter the rest of the world discards. This gray day brightens because of his antics, and look, here comes joy, winging to join him, just when I thought it was no longer possible. So that's going to be in my new book. Um, Thornton Wilder has said that one of the duties of the spirit is joy. And so I try to take that seriously. This poem was written on a writing residency in Virginia, but it was, it's a post 9-11 song. Praise song. Praise the light of late November, the thin sunlight that goes deep in the bones. Praise the crows chattering in the oak trees. Though they are clothed in light, in night they do not despair. Praise what little there's left, the small boats of milkweed hulls, husks, hulls, shells, the architecture of trees. Praise the meadow of dried weeds, yarrow, goldenrod, chicory, the remains of summer. Praise the blue sky that hasn't cracked yet. Praise the sun slipping down behind the beech nuts. Praise the quilt of leaves that covers the grass, scarlet oak, sweet gum, sugar maple. Though darkness gathers, Praise our crazy, fallen world. It's all that we have, and it's never enough. When I taught Sunday school, one of my little guys figured out that whenever I asked a question, Jesus was always the right answer. <laughs> when I was driving to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to do some readings, I was listening on my, um, you know, the CD thing, to Frank McCourt, the Irish writer, reading from his book, Teacher Man, where one of his students wrote, yes, was the best answer to every question, which is, I think, also a great line. And also, this poem really relates and maybe ties things full circle a bit to the very first session that I went to when, I was, uh, when we came on Thursday with Kwame talking about saying yes to everything. When the world says no, you say yes. So I'm going to just end with this one. And I want to wish you all joy, both in your life and in your writing journey. So yes. Yes was the best answer to every question. So I said yes to everything. Yes to the green hills rolling out ahead. Yes to the hayfield tied up in rolls. Yes to the clouds blooming like peonies in the sky's blue meadow. The long tongue of the road lolling out before me. Yes to the life of travel. Yes to the other life at home. Yes to the daisies freckling the ditch, to the sun pouring down on everything like Vermeer's milkmaid and her endless jug of milk. Yes to the winds that pulled the clouds apart like taffy, then turned them into a classroom of waving hands punched into fists. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you. How to follow that, the first word out of my mouth will be something along the lines of lamentation. So, During Lent this year, my church focused on lamentations as a means of longing for resurrection. As the weeks went by, we mourned over injustices and losses nearly unspeakable, remembering Emmett Till's young body beaten to death because of racism, because of a lie that decades later a white woman confessed to. 
current police brutality and an inequitable criminal justice system, physical illnesses and pain, and in general, everything we lack. As Christian Wyman says in the introduction to the new anthology of poems he has edited, an anthology aptly titled Joy, A Hundred Poems, the one abundance you can count on in this life is lack. An artist need not go looking for it, much less empowering it unnaturally by laying her gift down in front of sadness like a sacrifice. If anything, a modern artist might have to lean the other way, might have to seek out and sing her moment of happiness and joy, if only to balance the scale. And indeed, such is the state of contemporary literature sometimes. We do and must write about these injustices and the suffering of so many. Their voices should be heard, and we must not live in our own sentimental, sanitized realities, oblivious to what others experience if we happen to somehow escape injustice or suffering ourselves. Yet the pendulum does sometimes swing too far. As one of my former colleagues used to teach her poetry students, there are actually two sides to the coin of sentimentality. One side is that Pollyanna vision we work tirelessly to avoid as writers of literature. Yet the other side doesn't seem to get as much airtime, angst's obsession with pain's never-ending tales. I'm not sorry for the pun. Anya and I have talked a lot about experiencing that kind of reaction to our poetry because we've both detailed in previous books and present books uh, poems of suffering and especially physical suffering. And we've both had editors respond to our book submissions with comments along these lines. Why are there poems of joy and beauty amid poems of your suffering? That seems inauthentic or sentimental. And yet, we respond by saying, hello? That's not really real life either. That's, that doesn't seem to be the lives we're living. There has been a long history, in fact, of poetry wedding melancholy to beauty, pain to joy. We, look no, we don't have to look any further than, for instance, Ezekiel, the Old Testament prophet, whose book presents us with a glorious example, an example my pastor noted during our season of lamentation this year. That scroll Ezekiel ate, the one that tasted like honey, if you go forward a few verses, you find out that scroll was made of words of mourning and of woe. So imagine that. Ezekiel eats lamentation, and it tastes sweet. Then there's Keats' Ode on Melancholy, urging his readers alike to glut thy sorrow on a morning rose, or on the rainbow of the salt sand wave, or on the wealth of globed peonies. And what if the problem is enduring perhaps a mistress's anger? Well then, he says, imprison her soft hand and let her rave and feed deep, deep upon her peerless eye. So when Wyman notes that many writers feel as though joy is quite particular in its resistance to particularity, he echoes French novelist Henri de Montherrand, who said, happiness writes white. Impossible to describe, happiness is like a white page with white words, he thought. Thankfully, many contemporary poets have challenged these notions, thus the reason for Wyman's anthology in the first place. And poets like Ed Hirsch, whose poems Happiness Writes White, humorously, yet as Hirsch says, urgently, challenges the common romantic prejudice by showing that happiness, too, can be precise. Doctor, he writes in his poem, there's a keen throbbing on the left side of my chest where my ribs are wrenched by joy. I was probably a little too naive and too stupid to realize that I was taking on such a big thing in my first book, Slipping Out of Bloom. But there is a poem in that book called Joy. And I wrote it, and it appears near the end of the book. And it, again, I, was, I didn't probably know it at the time, but it was, I was working a kind of balancing of the scales. It has an epigraph from Ralph Waldo Emerson as well. It says, the cup of life is not so shallow that we have drained the best. Fireflies flashing over hip-high corn. Breathe deep, as if it's the first time this joy unfurls like a ribbon from the pith beneath your ribs. 
Witness dusk now, shading in corners of the sky, indigo shadows tunneling with the sun. Taste a miracle tonight. Taste its sacred nectar. Hear the low whine of the owl. Hold the jewel of the night in your open hand. And that came at the end of a book that detailed um, poems that really went through a year of tremendous physical suffering. And yet, like many of the Psalms, came through um, in a different place and, and a deeper, perhaps more rooted joy because of those experiences. Another poem I've written that explores joy is called Full Flower Moon and is in my latest book, Full Warm Moon, as Anya said, which was released last month. And this poem uh, I actually wrote for the women at Safe Harbor House, and it's a halfway house of sorts in Springfield, Ohio, that treats women who've been rescued from trafficking. And um, it was based out of uh, Ephesians, based on Ephesians um, 2, where we're told we are God's workmanship, we are God's poems, we are God's poema. And um, yet, it really is a poem of joy, becoming who we were made to be. And so it's called Full Flower Moon, which is the name for the moon in May. The moon tonight smells like linen, clean and pressed, spreading its blue fabric over not just May's fields, but the willow by the pond, the hens in the one window coop, the dog on the lawn, poking her nose into the myrtle. The sky tastes like a mug of tea, warm and smooth with cream, served at a welcoming table. Should God suddenly speak, the flocks would not be flummoxed, or the red-tailed fox baffled. After all, green already pulses through everything, its rhythm in sync with this full flower moon and the worm below writing a new word in the dirt. Would it really be so strange if the still small voice broke open like a bulb between the earth, then aired something sensible as the strong stem lifting high its lit lantern, signaling us to join in, do what we were made to do? Poets like Jane Kenyon, uh, who whose poetry had a great influence and has had a great influence on me, also wrote poems of joy and happiness. In fact, she has a very well-known poem called Happiness. And those of you who have read joy, uh, Jane Kenyon know that she also, in her life, endured long periods of deep depression as someone diagnosed with bipolar disorder. But in her poem Happiness, she compares happiness to a prodigal who comes back to the dust at your feet, having squandered a fortune far away. And her poem then goes through and chronicles all the different ways happiness appears to everyone at some point in their life, no matter their situation. And so we know that there's this balance that's going on in these poems, and yet there's still this contemporary resistance to writing about joy and happiness as if all of it is sentimental, as if we go that direction, we're somehow not as intellectually rigorous as we should be. And so as Wyman notes again in his anthology, he says, and I think rightly so, clamoring after joy and only joy can lead only to fevered simulacra, an art of professional echoes and planned epiphanies, the collective swells of manipulative religion, the manufactured euphoria of drugs. We must write, but with great care about joy. And he also, think, he also I think, defines joy rightly. Joy is what keeps reality from being sufficient unto itself, which is to say, it's what keeps reality real. Since in this world of multiverses and quantum weirdness, where 95% of matter and energy we know only to name as dark, it is obvious that reality extends far beyond what our senses can perceive. So what in the world, or what beyond the world, is calling to us when we are called to joy? It is true that the unknown is the largest need of the intellect, wrote Emily Dickinson in a letter, though for it, no one ever thinks to thank God. So then I think of Stephen Hawking, who just passed away in his quantum physics and his atheism, which he eventually fully confessed to in 2014. Science works, Hawking said, 
and worked so well that he declared philosophy dead. He believed scientists had become, had become the bearers of the torch of discovery and request for knowledge. Thus, philosophical problems could be answered by science, particular, particularly new scientific theories, which he said lead us to a new and very different picture of the universe and our place in it. I'm not here to argue that neo-atheism is to blame for the lack of literature exploring joy, but the connection between the two in our contemporary age is interesting. I'm also not here to endorse Hawking either, though, because I don't think philosophy or religion is dead. Why would I be here if that were my <laughs> position? Um, and nor do I share Hawking's positivist perspectives on everything science can do. I happen to think philosophy, religion, and science do share a common source, like John Henry Newman espoused when he wrote the idea of a university over 150 years ago, and noted that the true intellect is not a specialist who disregards disciplines other than his own, but rather the scholar who understands and values all fields equally and spends her life seeking to understand the relationships between those fields. And I think this is the very role joy can play in poetry, therefore. Juxtaposed with the truth of injustice and pain, joy emerges, taking its rightful place in reality, balancing the spheres. So it is with the poetry I write myself, and I'll share two poems here to end that go along those themes. The first poem comes from the first section of my, my new book, which details a really gut-wrenching, and probably even the hardest time of my life when my 27-year marriage ended in um, just really abusive and destructive ways. And um, you wouldn't think that a poem about that could possibly have anything to do with joy, but here it is. And it's called, I Never Met a Flower That Yelled at Me. I would say this is a hard one joy in this poem, so you might want to fasten your seatbelts. I never met a flower that yelled at me, her neighbor always says, explaining why every year he, I should stop. I always forget to explain. This section of the book I wrote in third person. There are a lot of different reasons for that, which I would love to talk with you about, but I don't have time today. Um, so I just want you to know that that's written in third person. Okay. I never met a flower that yelled at me, her neighbor always says, explaining why every year he plants and hangs geraniums, begonias, impatience, petunias, even blue lobelia amid his blooming bulbs. She wants that sentiment to infect her too, the summer her husband leaves. So on the hottest day Ohio can muster, she faces the roses her husband sunk in soil ten years before. On the side of the house, they grow weed loud. Even cantankerous saplings push through the bushes, silencing all the kind words in their red mouths. Everything has to go. As she digs, thorns and muscular weeds thick with prickles recite her husband's remarks on her skin, scratching, clawing, tearing. I can't, I can't commit to you 100%, only 75%. Shovel meets hard earth again and again. Gasping for air, feeling her back spasm in protest, she clings to the wood handle. You're too hard line. You want too much. She lets the sun scold her, lets the heavy air weigh on her shoulders, lets all of it, the whole fucking force of his question, what do you mean I disregard you? Fuel her resistance, her freedom to say no, you and your furious mess will not stand, not here any longer. In their place, she leaves behind what perennial peace she can, pink Asiatic lilies, purple coneflowers, and threadleaf coreopsis shining their favor without ridicule or question. That's kind of my joy poem that's, that's, hell yeah, there can be joy after that. The last poem I'll read is called Milton and is actually dedicated to a former colleague of mine who teaches Milton and teaches his great pamphlet against censorship called Areopagitica. So it has a quotation from that in the epigraph. This poem also is a poem of joy, but it also came out of a very hard time because we were working at a place that was beginning to censor material that we were trying to teach, truth we believed in. And so the quotation, the epigraph of the poem says, truth is strong. 
She needs no policies, nor stratagems, no, nor licensings to make her victorious. Those are the shifts and the defenses that error uses against her power. Give her but room, and do not bind her when she sleeps. So Milton. Every morning, long before sunrise, a single bird blows its tiny whistle. Not sparrow, or dove, or chickadee, a bird I cannot name scientifically. Its praise a will-o'-the-wisp might sing if it ever got its wish, challenging darkness to a duel for striking other voices down, a signature tune insisting meekly, give me room and do not bind me when I sleep. I lie in bed listening to this native tongue, its will no act of God can bend or school of night erase gathering notes of gold in this unlikely place. Good afternoon. Um, I just want to say, uh, this is my sixth Festival of Faith and Writing. My first time was 2008, and I haven't missed one. The very first session I walked into, my very first festival of faith and writing was led by Barbara. <laughs> yeah, on ecrastic poetry. So now here I am. It's just such an honor to be here with her and, and these other wonderful women. Um, the most important spiritual truth that I have learned and lived um, in the past decade or so of my life is that uh, joy and happiness are not interchangeable. They are not the same thing to me at all. Um, I define joy as an overall sense of peace, acceptance, uh, well-being, even when circumstances are far less than happy. Um, if happiness is a field of wildflowers, joy is the overall healthy ecosystem beneath. Um, the reason why this has been so important for me to learn is um, I have struggled with anxiety for most of my life. I, I didn't realize, um, I wasn't diagnosed with it until I was an adult, but it, it really um, defined um, a lot of my youth as well. And um, I became a Christian as a teenager, and I remember in college really struggling with some pretty severe anxiety and, and trauma, just dealing with some stuff um, from growing up, and just feeling so guilty that here I was a believer, and I was supposed to be joyful, and we're told to be joyful. It's like a command, and I felt terrible all the time. I felt like I was doing something wrong. I felt like... Um, I was not living up to what it meant to be a believer. Um, you know, and then we're also told in Philippians not to be anxious about anything. It's like, oh, well, now what am I supposed to do? <laughs> like, I can, I'm not happy. I'm, I'm worried about a lot of things. Um, but I began to learn that worry and, and clinical anxiety are not the same thing. And happiness and joy are also not the same thing. Um, in fact, feeling like we must be happy all the time is really not even um, a biblical idea. I, a couple of verses that talk about joy. Uh, James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There's nothing about happiness in that verse. The joy is coming from the trials. 2 Corinthians 7.4 says, I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. And Paul says, in all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. Joy and affliction are coexisting. Paul was not happy when he was being 
beaten and tortured in prison, but he was overflowing with joy. Uh, Julie talked about sentimentality, which um, is, I, I think the reason why we, uh, or like Anya uh, came up with this idea for the panel was as believers, we feel nervous. We, we don't, you know, we want to write about joy, but we don't want it to be corny and cheesy. I mean, that, that's that's really the, the big concern. Um, sentimentality happens when we just skim the surface of joy in the pursuit of happiness. Um, I think about a parallel would be, you know, the, the glow of a house in a Thomas Kincaid painting. <laughs> that, that is a picture of happiness. But the true story, you know, what, are, what are the rich emotions that are going on inside of that house? Um, and writing about joy has been very liberating for me, understanding that joy doesn't have to mean happiness. I can be honest about my emotions and circumstances. Um, to me, joy is about presence, regardless of what you are present to. Um, so I'm going to read a few poems that explore some of these ideas. Um, This is the joy of presence. Blessed are the meek. She is all we learn to forget. The woman approaching the edge of the health club pool. She wears her hair like laundry lint. Faded lycra, toucans, and orchids sag beneath her nipples. I imagine her going home to dump a can of Campbell's in a casserole while her husband barks orders from the football chair. She moves through the house without consequence, straightening an old lighthouse cross-stitch in the hallway, rifling through coupons for half-price oil changes. But this morning, she is here. Her eyes take in the narrow lane of water as if it were the river of an ancient civilization and she plans to wrap her arms around time itself. She twists, then stretches her mottled fingers to the rising dough of her feet. She catches my stare, arches her brows at me, and jumps, gliding and breathing, gliding and breathing as I fade above the churning waves. My newest book is What Will Soon Take Place, which is a journey through the book of Revelation. And Revelation was written to uh, the persecuted early church. And I think it's very important to read it in that context. Um, and about uh, the bigger picture, the joy of hope that comes during unhappy situations. And I, um, yeah, so keep, keep the persecuted church in mind as I read this. Alpha, oh, it's called the New Jerusalem, New Jerusalem. Alpha, Omega, it makes no difference. The heavenly city of God has come down. He makes his dwelling place in the muddy corner of your garage, the oncologist's office, the space between paper and pen. Run your fingers along the foundation walls studded with onyx and topaz. Bask in the jasper. Hear the gate squeak of pearl on gold. Pain and tears will pass away, but for now he bedazzles your blisters and tissue, sailing a nerve. Somehow, do you believe it? The neck of a kneeling man about to lose his head to the sand. He prays for water, just one last drink. The sword lifts, then springs bubble up in the dark.
We've talked a little bit about how there can be joy uh, in sadness. When I think about um, Ruth and her relationship with her mother-in-law, Naomi, it's, it's a very uh, bittersweet. Uh, there's much sadness and joy in that relationship. Uh, this poem um, is based on um, the classic Ruth verse, where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Ruth speaks to Naomi. Really, there is not much to love in this world. Maybe sparrows, children laughing in the morning, but your God forgive me. If I knew I had to sleep forever tonight, my tired heart would survive it. We are widows now, the shriveled leaves that blow along the rooftops. We are worth nothing but the measure of loneliness we can remove from each other. Of course I must follow you, Naomi, from Moab to Bethlehem to the musty corner of our home where we will boil the grain and sweep the dirt, comb each other's hair in the evening and feel the coarse curls fall between our fingers. And I'm going to end with um, a poem from my book, Second Sky, which uh, deals with Paul and his writings, and there's quite a bit in his letters about joy. And joy is not always all that exciting either. <laughs> joy can be quiet and even kind of boring especially when you are, um, you know, living in suburbia with three kids and, and the tasks, tasks of daily life, um, you seek and look for joy in, in any moment possible. Um, and um, my reference to praying the prayer is uh, I have roots in evangelicalism where you, you know, accept Christ by praying a prayer. Not everyone is familiar with that. Put on the new self, and this is based on Colossians 3.10. 25 years after praying the prayer, when my new life was supposed to snap in place like elastic, the smell of crisp store rack cotton propelling me to run with endurance toward a finish line I could not see, I lie on the couch with a sour-smelling terrier curled in the crook of my leg. Today, I will bathe him, punch through three K-cups, run a trumpet book to the grammar school. No martyrdom here, no preaching in the streets. Though tomorrow I might plant another bag of daffodils, so in April I can kneel in the gold and think all things new once more. But now I turn my eyes to things above in the window, squirrels gibbering in the canopy of my backyard maple. I doze and wake to their claws skittering down the trunk, mentally etch the face of Christ in the bark. He doesn't need me. He wants me. Neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, tired nor on fire. I will slip into newness again, fluff the shaking, sodden dog in his name as he drapes me with his soft and silent weaving. Thank you. are all so fabulous. Um, Anna Kamianska, who was one of my favorite poets, Polish poet, wrote in her journals, joy, it's not just a gift. In a sense, it's also a duty, a task to fulfill, courage. 
And I sort of almost want to throw away everything I was going to say today, but I'm not going to, because just this morning I received um, news from my doctor that the metastatic cancer with which I live may have um, progressed a little bit. And I haven't had a chance to talk to my doctor, but um, I sat in Kate Bowler's talk today and just wept <laughs> um, her conversation today. Um, so as someone who suffers from a chronic illness like I do, and ultimately a terminal illness, my default mode is despair. Um, and so ha for me to be happy, I have to practice happiness. It has to be active. I can't just wait to be happy. Um, and to me, it is a religious duty and a task of faith. It's a service to God and to my neighbor. Um, it's a recognition of the fortunes that I've been given along with the suffering, such as a fabulous husband and son. And writing is one of the main ways that I practice happiness, writing poems that force me to express and acknowledge gratefulness, appreciation, and joy, because I might not do that if I didn't write about it. Um, and at the same time, acknowledging my suffering because... Um, there, is no, there is no real joy without suffering, as I think all of our panelists have said. And side note, I think that the acknowledgement of suffering is the essential part of what makes poems about happiness good rather than sentimental junk. Um, and I won't insult Kincaid, but maybe I am. Um, so I have two, two Japanese concepts that I, that I think of a lot. And I mentioned one of my in my reading earlier, one is wabi-sabi, and it consists of finding beauty in the imperfections of life, including the cycles of growth and decay. So wabi-sabi sees beauty not simply death and the decaying tree stump, and it doesn't just look for what's pretty. Um, recently, Image Journal featured the work of Jesuit priest Trung Pham, who wants to see tenderness and fragility in the grotesque, deformed, contorted look of wounds. One can see wabi-sabi at work in depictions of the crucifixion that transcend normal ideas of happiness in reaching toward, as Tanya was discussing, a deeper beauty and a greater joy that arise out of suffering. Wabi-sabi is an artistic philosophy. Um, and related to it is kintsugi, or kintsukori, um, which is concrete and refers to a form of, poet of pottery in which cracked or broken pottery is repaired with silver, gold, or platinum. So rather than hiding the flaws in pottery, kintsugi aims to make the flaws the source of the piece's preciousness and beauty. So in terms of my writing, I conflate beauty and happiness somewhat. A poem's language and or form, simply the form of a sonnet, can evoke happiness in the reader, even if the subject of the matter, subject matter of the poem is mournful, because there's something beautiful, as um, Seshlamiyosh wrote in one of his poems, there's something beautiful in order. And when we see order, it makes us happy. Um, but more so in the case of my work, my poems aim to find joy in the brokenness and trauma of life. The joy that I feel is the gold lacquer and the wreckage of my body and in the literal disfigurement of my body through the loss of a breast. This approach is a form of faith for me. My faith in God is a God who suffers alongside human beings, who is in the MRI machine with me, who urges me to write about the comforts and joys that thread their way through my life. So my poetry becomes a thank you to the suffering and redemptive Christ who coexists with the emotions of anger, doubt, and betrayal that God also wants me to express. I, if God, whatever God wants, I don't know what God wants, but that's how I feel. Um, if my poetry did not acknowledge the existence of the cracks um, and also my anger at God then the joy would be a cheap joy. And I think about Bonhoeffer's cheap grace. Um, to be joyful, we need to acknowledge the anger and the doubt, or it's a cheap joy. So with that introduction, I'm going to read um, 
four poems from each of my books because they're all my babies, and so I don't want to neglect any of them. This is a poem I read at all my readings, um, so some of you may have heard it before. Um, this is about the first time I went back to church after having a diagnosis of cancer. And I hadn't, I'd been away from church, but I, having a disease makes you surprisingly open to the idea of maybe there's something else out there. Um, so um, that's one good thing about it. So uh, this is called Persimmon. I place you by my window so your skin can receive the setting sun so your flesh will yield to succulents, lush with juice. So the saints of autumn will, will bless your flaming fruit. Because cancer has left me tired. Because when I visit God's houses, I enter and leave alone. Not even in the melting beeswax and swinging musk of incense has God visited me, not when I've bowed or kneeled or sung. Because I have found God instead when I've crouched in bathrooms, lain back for the burning of my skin, covered my face, and cursed. Persimmon, Votive candle at the icon of my kitchen window, your four-petaled stem, the eye of God in the temple's dome, dwelling place for my wandering prayers, I am learning from you how to praise. Because when your body bruises and softens, you are perfected, because your soul, persimmon, is sugar. I wrote that when I was so upset during church that I ran out to the bathroom and I just collapsed on the floor and I said, God, if you exist, can you please come to me? And I felt God come to me, not in the liturgy, but lying and sitting in the, in the bathroom. So you never know when, when that will happen. Um, if you've ever been to a hospital, you know that when you enter a hospital, you sort of lose yourself. You, you're put in a room, um, nurses and techs, and I love nurses, by the way. This, that's not anti-nurse. Feel free to come in at any time, even in the middle of the light, night, flick the lights on and take your vital signs for no particular reason. Um, you can't put the clothes you want on. You're given food to eat that you don't want to eat. Um, so you really lose a sense of identity. And this poem is about how joyful it feels to leave a hospital and become Anya, in my case, again, just become myself leaving the hospital. As the doors glide shut behind me, the world flares back into being. I exist again, recover myself. Sunlight undimmed by dark pains, the heat on my arms, the world's breath. The wind tongues me to my feet like a doe licking her newborn fawn. At my back, Days measured by vital signs, my mouth opened and arm extended. The nighttime cries of a man withered child size by cancer, and the bells of empty IVs tolling through hallways. Before me, life, mysterious, ordinary, holding off pain with its muscular wings. As I step to the curb, an orange moth dives into the basket of roses that lately stood on my sick room table, and the petals yield to its persistent nudge, opening manifold and golden. That's a happy image at the end. So even though the poem is not happy, that's supposed to be a, an image of openness and happiness. So this is my book, um, From Nothing. This is a poem I read a lot just because I, I really like it. So, um, but it's also about um, finding joy in a difficult situation. And um, for any of you who are women who like lipstick, you know that the search for the perfect red lipstick is really important. Um, it can take up a lot of psychological time. Um, I have actually found it. So if you need to know what it is, I can tell you. But this is about that. It's called Just Red. I stand in Walgreens while my mother sleeps. 
The store is fluorescent and almost empty. My father is ailing in a nursing home. My friend is dying in the hospital. What I want tonight is lipstick. As pure a red as I can find. No coral undertones, no rust or fawn, just red. Ignoring the salespeople, I untwist tubes and scrawl each color on my wrist till the blue veins beneath my skin disappear behind smeared bars. I select one. Back in my mother's apartment, silence. I limb my lips back out of my wan face. There they are again, smacky and wanting. <laughs> um, this, I'll close with this poem because I want to have some time for questions and answers, hopefully. Um, this poem, it's a little, I need to explain a little bit what it is. Um, it's inspired by a medieval uh, book um, called The Colloquy by Alfric, who was an, 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 a monk. And it was written about um, 955 AD. Um, and the book consists of dialogues between people of different professions and a master or a teacher, but they were really used to teach kids Latin, and they're also spiritual lessons. So this poem begins with an epigraph from this one section of the book by Alfric, the colloquy, and it's called Salter, somebody who processed salt, which was, of course, very expensive in these days. So the master asks, Salter, how does your craft benefit us? Salter, everyone benefits a great deal from my skill. No one enjoys his breakfast or dinner unless my skill is present in it. Indeed, all the butter and cheese would go bad unless I looked after it, which of course would be, that would be true sorrow if that happened. So this is a poem about the salt, about salter, about salt. O Lord, our God, how delicious is your name. And glad is everyone who recognizes in the world the works of your fingers. Salter you shall eat fish in summer and in autumn the garden's bitter greens. You will brine the harvest for winter's broth. And in spring, you will sprinkle salt and herbs on the, hen, on the eggs of your fruitful hens. The treasures of the mines and the seas will be precious to you and the trees and vines. You will season all of God's creation with joy. Order and radiance will follow your footsteps. The Lord will bless those who cure, who sow the tears of the sorrowful and harvest the feathered sheaves of peace. Blessed are those who preserve the earth for they shall be preserved. Thank you. So now we have time for questions um, about writing, poetry, happiness, um, and... This answer may be different for all the individual sorrows, but when you experience something, a deep grief like the loss of a child or a marriage, did you personally find it helpful to write about that right away? Or did you need space and time away from the subject before you could find joy and write in about the joy? I can, I'll say something first, but we probably all have different things to say. I needed some time. Um, the first poems that I wrote about cancer and also about miscarriages that I'd had um, were not good. So I sort of clung a little bit to Wordsworth's idea of emotion, um, something in tranquility, recollected in, tra recollected in tranquility. So personally, I need a little space. Now, I did think it was good therapeutically to get all that out right away, and I did go back to some of that, but in terms of writing a finished poem, I did need a little bit of time. My first two books um, detailed a lot of physical suffering that I and my family were going through, and it was very helpful to write those poems as I was going through it. And um, there was great therapeutic value to it, but I never thought I would do anything with those poems. I thought they stunk. I thought they were awful. And it wasn't until I was through and on the other side that I then could look back and see, oh, there might be some value in that. The loss of my marriage, that was a totally different pain. 
that was a totally different experience. And I actually was told by my therapist to write about it. <laughs> so I was not writing at all about it. And I was not making progress. And uh, my counselor said, you're a writer, why aren't you writing about this? And I told her something that I couldn't even believe came out of my mouth, because if I had been sitting with a writer, I would know exactly what to say to that person. But there I was saying it, and I said, well, I didn't think I was allowed to write about my husband. Wow. Um, and so that was really freeing that that was a part then of my healing process. I still didn't know if anything would come of the poems. And they started just as journals and, and getting things out. But it became a means of treatment as well, because I was suffering from PTSD. And, and so rewriting even the scripts of Nightmares, which is a poem that's in the book, that became one of the therapeutic um, approaches as well that we used to try to get me past those nightmares because it was the same one over and over and over again. So yeah, there was a delay for me. So it was a different, different suffering, different mechanism. Yeah, I want to, I think, elucidate on that. Uh, I have a series of poems on the, uh, the death of a friend to breast cancer, and I was writing those during the time, and a book of poems about the loss of my mother, again, writing those during the time, because I think we're writers, and that's what we do is we write. But the poems about the death of the child, I'm still writing that poem. It's been, I've been writing that poem for 40 years. I just want to add that sometimes writing helps you because it gives order to the experience. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so writing about it was helpful, is helpful for me because it puts me back in control of my, of my life in a way. It also gives form and shape to the experience. And I, I, I always feel it's a double-edged thing that, that therapy is therapy and writing is writing, but the act of writing is therapeutic. So it's, it's both. Um, so my question kind of goes along with that. Um, in The Art of Spiritual Writing, Vanita Hampton Wright has an amazing essay about um, public writing versus private writing and the difference between um, writing something out when you're still going through it and it's super raw and then the more public writing that might actually be helpful for people that's kind of more on the other side of it. So I guess um, what percentage of your poetry and processing um, came out of the really raw like experience and then um, how much of it was kind of revised and filtered and um, kind of got published after you had um, kind of processed through it a little more and how much revision went into your poems before they became public, I guess. I don't do any private writing. I'm, I'm really writing for craft, for making an object, a found thing, like a, a potter makes a, a pot, like a, someone who works in wood makes a beautiful bowl. Um, the raw stuff might be the materials, but I'm always working on craft. Um, I, I tend, when I'm going through a real, uh, a stage of pretty deep anxiety, I tend to get paralyzed, and I can, you know, just to, Getting my kids on the bus is a huge uh, achievement, and, and writing is the last thing on my mind. But I, I did, um, a couple of years ago, when I was going through a really dark time, I um, challenged myself to do what felt impossible at the time, and that was I wrote, uh, this was not poetry, this was actually a, a post that I wrote for um, Good Letters, which is the blog from Image Journal. I wrote from the depths of what I was going through. It was really, really hard to do, but I thought, you know, if I'm ever going to try this, now's the time. I, I haven't felt this bad <laughs> in a while. And um, I will say that the response I got from that, um, from people who um, were able to identify with, with what I was experiencing, was, was overwhelming which showed me that there is definitely value to writing from those places of suffering. I just never feel like doing it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I would echo that. I would say, I, I, I don't know how Ginsburg did it with the first thought, best thought thing, but I revise incessantly. Um, revision, there is a rawness at first, um, usually at the moment 
that I'm writing the poem for the very first time and then I'm a little narcissist and I'm in love with the poem and I think this must be the Pulitzer Prize winning thing and then you know a week later I go wow this thing stinks and the revision begins so it's interesting because when it is about something along these lines there is that rawness for me at first but at the same time the revision gives me the necessary distance from it almost to to then craft it, as Barbara was saying. And the third person in, in my last book, the reason I went with third person point of view is because first person was just excruciating. That was, I just could never get enough distance in order to not be so raw about it. So that was one reason, there were some other reasons too, but that distance thing was really necessary, so. And I, I would just say that like, I revise constantly. It's like revision, revision, revision. And again, it's a way of ordering the poem. I mean, you have the raw material of emotion, but then you start looking at line lengths and rhyme and whether an image works, and you look at the language, the words, the sounds, and that's what makes it a poem rather than a diary entry. And I do keep a tortured diary, too, which nobody will ever want to read. Um, but for poems, it's, revision is extremely important for me. And while, re while revision sounds like a lot of work and sounds really boring. I love it. The, yeah. the poet William Matthews said, revision isn't cleaning up after the party. Revision is the party. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I think this is the last question. So our section has monopolized the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask about, um, I, I really appreciated your, your, all of you kind of brought through that the joy comes in the context of, of other deeper things. Um, so my question is, do you find yourself um, maybe writing, writing really dark and, and then you, you tell yourself now it's time for some joy or just the joy spring out of it? Or, or do, you, do you search for the joy while you're in the midst of the, the crap? That's well, a technical term. Robert Frost talks about poetry as a journey, and I, I, I believe in this too. Um, if you know where a poem is heading, well, that's where you start, and then you see where it goes. And I, I try, at least, to never direct the work, but to let the work direct me. And it's, you know, you're journeying through a dark woods with no map, and you don't know where you're going. Yeah. yeah. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Amen. We're, all, we're also we're all writing teachers. Yeah. 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 <laughs> the the poem I read about tearing out the rose bushes and planting uh, flowers, that was something I lived through. That was something I did. That was a very angry poem in early drafts because that was I mean pulling out the rose bushes and the thorns and everything. I mean that was me getting my anger out. And it wasn't until much later drafts that I realized, wow, I kind of even pushed through it, that tearing out the rose bushes was therapeutic too. And what did I leave in its place? Oh, these beautiful flowers and that I had established some sense of peace and joy. And so yeah, there's a sense in which joy can spring up, but it's also there's also another sense where it's hard won. I really like appreciated what Anya said about almost a, a discipline of our faith that we work at joy, too. Well, I would love to take more questions, but it is 4.30, so. Um, thank you. But thank you so much, all of you, for coming in. I'm sure we'll answer questions. Our deep gratitude to Barbara Crooker, Julie Moore, and Tanya Runyon. We give thanks for the life of Anya Silver. To paraphrase George Herbert, for all our sweet, sour days, we will lament and love. May she rest in song and rise in glory. Rewrite Radio is a production of the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing, located on the campus of Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Theme music is June 11th by Andrew Starr. You can find more information about the center and its signature event, the Festival of Faith and Writing, online at ccfw.calvin.edu and festival.calvin.edu and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to Rewrite Radio on iTunes and leave us a review to help others find this podcast. Thanks so much for listening and stay tuned for more from the Festival Archives.